we are all innately capable of wholeness. This is not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. I can't give you the context for who I am now as a, as a clinician and a doctor without doing it through the context of my faith background, my immigrant story, or my experience as a patient. Uh, you know, I grew up in the charismatic Pentecostal, kind of all the gifts of the spirit church. And as an adult and somebody who now works in, in the world of neurotheology, which is neuroscience and spiritual experiences, reframing the healthy aspects of that as something that I can reinforce and then reframing some of the really damaging and traumatic aspects into something that I can I can develop into a, a more well-rounded whole human being as a result of some of those and even being willing to name some of those pretty strongly experienced and strongly reinforced encounters as trauma. trauma. The culture that I grew up in a faith-based environment was so performative mm. and so performance-driven that it developed a significant part of my psyche. So I developed a chronic pain syndrome and I was raised in a charismatic culture that if you pray hard enough and you believe hard enough and you get anointed in enough oil, that you'll get healed and that you'll yeah. get better. And that didn't stop me from burying my dad. It didn't stop me from burying both of my wife's parents and it's never stopped a migraine for me. So in this space of trying to figure out who I am as a third culture kid, who I am as, uh, you know, this, this idea of being a child of God, but not feeling like God is even remotely interested in, in my journey. And then being a patient who went to 21 specialists over nine years and spent $100,000 in the first few years of a marriage uh, when my wife and I got married at 19 and 21 and going, it just doesn't feel like I'm getting any clarity on what works. What works. When your sense of safety is tied to eternal salvation, or your sense of safety is tied to eternal torture, pain, suffering, excommunication, and abandonment, your sense of fear is tremendously higher, right? Not only is the intensity high, that there's, there's legitimate consequence to disobedience. But now that conversation is being repeated on a regular basis, and it's lasting for your entire adolescence. You go into adulthood with a hyper-efficiency for survival. 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 Ours was much more of a performance that was connected to an emotional heart center that was also showing up in a body center, but not so much the logic of a head side of what it meant to think critically and ask questions. Ask questions. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 729 Managing Religious Trauma, 
a whole brain approach with Dr. Jerome, author of The Brain-Based Enneagram. So, what happens when a white African refugee kid from the Congo moves to Tennessee, joins the Pentecostal church with his family, grows up, eventually leaves the Pentecostal church, experiences crushing migraines, searches for medical, neurological-based answers, can't find them, stumbles across the Enneagram, sees the potential value for creating a whole-brain approach to healing, and becomes the change he was hoping to see in the world? Well, listen in to find out. And if you're interested in the Enneagram or on healing from religious trauma yourself, come take a few minutes to fill out the new survey on the website infantsonthrones.com. And now I give you the fascinating story of Dr. Jerome. Enjoy. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. Oh, no, I appreciate, I appreciate you being here. So, so you go by Dr. Jerome. I do. And also, um, my ego is not so fragile that I need the honorific. So you can also call, <laughs> you, can, you can call me. I also have an identical twin brother and an older brother, and I'm an immigrant kid from Africa. So I, I lost the ability to be embarrassed a long time ago. So an immigrant I, kid from Africa. Yeah. I'm South African born to Zimbabwean parents. Wow. And I, uh, moved to the States on asylum status as a refugee kid from Congo in the early nineties. Wow. So I, I don't look it, but interestingly enough, um, my story is as an African refugee immigrant kid, I'm a white African, obviously, but even then, you know, my dad's side of the family is Afrikaans. So they were in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe for 400 years. But yeah, my lived experiences as a first-generation American immigrant uh, who spoke three languages when we moved to the country. My dad spoke 13. And I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school. So it was a very, very different experience to my peer group, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Have you been back to Africa? Once. After my dad passed, my dad passed when I was a freshman in high school. And we went when I was 17. But, you know, the interesting thing is, Glenn, that growing up as a third culture kid without any relatives. Mm. I don't have any grandparents. All of them have passed. My mom is the only parent left and I don't have any aunts or uncles. I've got two aunts and uncles in South Africa, but I've met them once when I was 17. Mm. So my lived experience with, with family and, and, and relatives is very small. Did, did you have, um, any traditions? You know, I, I, I mentioned before we started recording that I, I've got this background history in folklore. <laughs> so I get interested <laughs> about like family traditions and, and ethnic regional traditions. Was there anything that you did to uh, commemorate your upbringing as a kid, traditions that you had in your family? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I was actually having this conversation with somebody recently that when somebody asked, what's your favorite summer activity, I didn't have an answer hmm. because we didn't have summer activities. We didn't do vacation. Mm. Um, we didn't, my dad was a foundryman and a blacksmith who couldn't afford employees. So his only employees were his three sons. Mm. So I think I, I did not get any cultural traditions. Mm. Um, I think if there were anything that were kind of, uh, environmental or family based reinforcers or traditions that were kind of a part of the ethos of the family, the most reinforced tradition or ethos was a love of food mm even if it's poor, bad, low cost food, there's, there's, <laughs> there's a love of, of family at the table. So the yeah. tradition of the family meal, I think is probably the most profound tradition. 
but more than anything, uh, the two other biggest things that have had uh, that have had a huge impact that actually have required a lot of reconciliation and kind of adjusting and reframing is a significant tradition of work mm. and work ethic that leads to overwork. Mm. Um, and then the nature of a faith-based environment and then reframing what that looks like when, uh, you know, I grew up in the, the charismatic Pentecostal kind of all the gifts of the spirit church. Yeah. And as an adult and somebody who now works in, in the world of neurotheology, which is neuroscience and spiritual experiences, reframing the healthy aspects of that as something that I can reinforce and then reframing some of the really damaging and traumatic aspects into something that I can, I can develop into a, a, a more well-rounded whole human being as a result of some of those and even being willing to name some of those pretty strongly experienced and strongly reinforced encounters as trauma and, and learning how to be a non-performance based or performance anxiety driven human being. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of different pieces, but I'd probably say food. Say, say that one more time, a non-performance driven or, or anxiety driven. What, what was that? Sure. So um, reframing or becoming a non-performance driven human being or a non-performance anxiety driven human being because the culture that i grew up in a faith-based environment was so performative mm. and so performance driven that it, it developed a significant part of my psyche you had my home environment with a first generation immigrant family coming over with a hundred dollars and two suitcases a bipolar grandmother and a parrot, right? Um, it was really. That sounds like the setup for a bad joke. I gotta say, I know <laughs> it really, it really is. Um, and forgive me for the background noise. I've got my my computer on Do Not Disturb, but it's still for some reason. Oh, you know what it is? It's my iPad behind me. Oh, I didn't hear anything. Okay, good. This this yeah. microphone tends to be pretty good, but my brain is gonna is gonna move into a space where I'm concerned that that's gonna make noise for you. So I'm just yeah. gonna change. Thank you. Um, the joys of my undergrad is actually in uh, digital animation and film. Oh, really? And and I used to do music full time with my brothers before I moved into healthcare. I just I'm just a patient who became a doctor. But yeah, my undergrad is actually in in, in film and music, or my world before healthcare was film and music. So anytime I hear a background noise, I'm going, that's going to get picked up. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, very very interesting. I, I it it seems like we've got some parallels. Um, in the way that we were raised in a religion that put a heavy emphasis on performance. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've, I've had, I've had discussions with friends of mine where I use the word performance and they're like, why are you saying performance? <laughs> like, well, we're always putting on a show for everybody else, Absolutely. Uh, you know, getting up and standing in front of the congregation. And there are certain things that we would do certain expectations that we would have when, when you're using that word performance, what are some of the things that, that you're thinking about or those experiences that you had as a Pentecostal? Sure. You know, well, in the, in the non-denominational charismatic space, especially if you go to a church that believes in, in moving in all of the gifts of the spirit. Yeah. And when I say gifts of the spirit, probably the most highlighted one is speaking in tongues and, mm -hmm. and laying on of hands and healing and, and a lot of these other spaces. Uh, I think the, the easiest way to connect it is that there are places that you go into that are in a religious framework that immediately you can sense the overall level of energy. Mm. Like you go into an Orthodox space, it's not kinetic, right? You go into some churches and, and some faith-based spaces and you can feel how little energy, how controlled the environment is, right? But in a charismatic church, it's high energy. 
Uh, we always used to joke that it wasn't a good service in, until somebody started doing laps, meaning that somebody's running around the church, that there's somebody standing <laughs> on a chair, that there's somebody slain in the spirit and, and pleading the blood, right? All, all of these internal jargon language pieces that you use when you have a subculture with its own language. Right. But performatively, ours was actually very easy to see the performance space because it was so much actual performance. There was high energy praise and worship. There's high energy um, moving of the spirit was the language that they use when somebody's speaking in tongues or somebody's, you know, getting uh, hands laid on them in a healing environment. And it became this expectation that you had to match the energy level. If you came in in a space where you needed a chance to catch your breath or calm down and meditation, for instance, was a four letter word. It's <laughs> like the, the idea of finding stillness and finding a centered, grounded space you know, state of being uh, was a foreign concept to something so kinetic. Mm. Um, so I would say that ours was much more of a performance that was connected to an emotional heart center that was also showing up in a body center, but not so much the logic of a head side of what it meant to think critically and ask questions. Ours mm. was ours was not like a Jesuit place. If you study anything with the Jesuits, incredible thinkers and academics yeah. and intellectuals, charismatic churches are, are not the place that you go to do, you know, um, exegesis or you go to, you go to do anything around apologetics. It's, uh, you know, you're apologizing for the amount of, you know, uh, spit and excitement that you have flying <laughs> everywhere because of the amount of excitement in the body. But, uh, but yeah, I think the easiest way to explain the performance was just a sheer volume in every sense of the word as it related to energy. Yeah. Well, this is, this is fascinating. So could, could you talk a little bit about that shift that you made? I mean, you, you said earlier that you're a patient who became a doctor and um, what, what was that path like for you? How, how did you, how did you change your views of this tradition that you were raised in and the, and the way that you view it? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a great question, Glenn, cause I, I can't, give you the context for who I am now as a, as a clinician and a doctor without doing it through the context of my faith background, my, yeah. immigrant, my immigrant story, or my experience as a patient, right? So in all three of those contexts, every single place that I landed in, whether it was a first-generation immigrant coming from Zaire to Knoxville, Tennessee in the early 90s, mm. I went to 11 different schools before I graduated high school and had an identical twin brother who, when we graduated, was 85 pounds lighter than me. Mm. So my experience of what I was supposed to be and who I was supposed to look like was very visceral, very mm. tangible. Um, and then the expectations with being a first-generation immigrant kid. Then you take it from a faith-based perspective of being introduced, and that was a huge carryover from overseas to the States, is even though we came with nothing, my parents came with their faith, right? And being inundated into immediately into the church culture and into the subculture of the charismatic world, and having this experience of, of developing all of these particular approaches to, to developing a relationship with God that was very performance-based in my experience, and very retributive in terms of judgmentalism and critique and, and just trying to be a little bit less broken, right? Mm. And, and trying to figure out how to have God be less angry with me rather than more connected with me, mm. my experience, right? So I go through that space and my dad passes away as a freshman in high school. And I start having migraines as a 17-year-old and my identical twin brother does not have any. 
And over the last 20 years, I've had over 2,000 independent migraines. Mm-hmm. There's an average of about eight to 10 per calendar month mm-hmm. and about 10, 10 to 15 headaches independent of those migraines per month. So I develop a chronic pain syndrome and I was raised in a charismatic culture that if you pray hard enough and you believe hard enough and you get anointed in enough oil that you'll get healed and that yeah. you'll get better. And that didn't stop me from burying my dad. It didn't stop me from burying both of my wife's parents. And it's never stopped a migraine for me. So in this space of trying to figure out who I am as a third culture kid, who I am as, uh, you know, this, this idea of being a child of God, but not feeling like God is even remotely interested in, in my journey. And then being a patient who went to 21 specialists over nine years and spent $100,000 in the first few years of a marriage uh, when my wife and I got married at 19 and 21 and going, it just doesn't feel like I'm getting any clarity on what works. Mm. I, didn't know, I, I didn't know what worked in, in terms of being a twin or being a student or being a peer because we were changing schools every year. I didn't know what worked in a, in a faith-based spiritual setting because everything felt broken in that because we weren't seeing the outcomes matching the effort. And then as a patient, that was reinforcing all of this confirmation bias that there's something intrinsically wrong with me because clearly that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, 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 100%. So I created this, I, this, I, this experience that I've spent the last decade uh, actively pursuing a, a reframe and a, a reconciliation and, and, and becoming more healthy that it's influenced all of my work, it's influenced all of my patient care. And eventually what ended up happening is every single encounter that I got into, I felt like I couldn't get the answers that I was looking for and I couldn't get the support that I was looking for. And no one knew what to do, right? So I said, okay, what does it look like for me to become that person, to fill that that void that I have in my life for a good clinician, for a a healthy faith-based space, for a healthy community in terms of my peer group? And I went from digital animation, special effects production as an undergraduate to music full-time with my brothers to when that, that career ended abruptly overnight, um, ended, up, uh, ended up moving into pursuing the clinical degrees and becoming the doctor that I couldn't find. And that led into studying functional neurology, studying neuroscience, studying functional rehab. And then getting introduced to things like the Enneagram and having that entire experience all over again of going, man, this seems cool, but it also doesn't feel like it's comprehensive or holistic. Mm. Health isn't holistic. My experience as an immigrant isn't holistic. My faith-based experience isn't holistic. And now I'm looking at this Enneagram piece going, it still feels so darn reductive that I got back into another space that said, I think there's a better way to do this. And that's been kind of my bias to keep um, maneuvering into innovating um, new ways to look at old conversations because I've had to do that my whole life. Yeah, that's fa- that's fascinating. Uh, can you tell me, you're you're saying that it, your experience was, um, especially with the Enneagram, that you saw it as being reductive rather than being holistic, but but that was a pattern that you were seeing in a lot of these different areas, things that were reductive instead of holistic. Could you explain a little bit the difference between the two? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, one of the easiest ways to put it, Glenn, is there's, there's a line in the opening. It's, a, it's actually the first line in the book after you get past the table of contents in the brain-based Enneagram. And it says, we are all innately capable of wholeness. This is not about being less broken. It's about becoming more whole. Mm. And the reality was, and so much of the things that I was seeing from faith-based spaces to clinical spaces to enneagrammatic spaces was that when you get introduced into the conversation, it feels like so quickly 
everybody diagnoses you based on what's wrong with you, right? Mm. The church is like, here, here's where you're broken. The healthcare system is like, here's where you're broken. And the Enneagram is saying, here's where you're broken. And I'm like, as human beings, we're really, really good at consistently reminding ourselves and others what's wrong with us, right? Mm. But I'm not seeing the language that moves into, okay, I see that as a diagnostic, not a diagnosis. I don't want you to give me a diagnosis. I want you to give me something diagnostically that lets me know that I'm not as healthy as I could be, but where are the opportunities? Where are my blind spots? How do I move into a healthier version of myself? I don't want to just suck less tomorrow. I don't want to just be less broken tomorrow. I want to actually try and develop this idea of becoming more whole. But the challenge is in all of those spaces from faith to health there, the Enneagram it's so compartmentalized and mm -hmm. it's so dis it's so reductive that I'm either this particular denomination or I'm this particular part of the body of Christ or the church of whatever you ascribe to that I kept being reminded what box I was fitting into and how many people were not allowed in that box and how many people weren't allowed out of that box. Like the restrictive boundary goes both ways. Yeah. And then in healthcare, how much was not possible, how they couldn't do anything for me, how I was just going to be that way forever. And then in the Enneagram, getting the introduction of saying, well, this is the type that you are, and these are all of your character flaws, and you'll know who you are based on how much shame you feel. Wow. Like, <laughs> right? And this is, this is one of the things, if you talk to most people when they get introduced to the Enneagram, one, they were proselytized so hard on it by a friend. <laughs> that, you know, and anybody who knows anything about most faith bases, but especially if you know a Mormon background, proselytizing is kind of part of the fabric, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's hard is all of a sudden people have the bias of being put off because they've been inundated with the idea un, un, without permission and without consent. It's just been kind of pushed into their, their arena or their purview. But then at the same time, when they finally ascribe to it or they finally open themselves up to the conversation, their first introduction is about what's wrong with them. And it creates mm. so much shame, right? So not only do you already have a resistance to it, possibly because of how much it's been forced onto you un without permission or consent, but now you finally opened yourself up to the conversation and all it's done is reminded you even further of where you're missing it. Mm. Part of that in terms of the brokenness versus the wholeness or the holistic side of it is in every single aspect that I'm talking about from faith to healthcare to the Enneagram, very rarely did you have anybody sit down, and I very rarely had this happen, if ever, had somebody sit down and say, okay, this is who you are as a whole person. Like if you're a Mago Day and you're made in the image of divinity and whatever that divine name is called, whether it's, you know, in, in whatever any of the, the perennial traditions are or even the offshoots and the subtext or the, sub, the subsets, subcultures, Let's assume you're made in the image of divinity. Okay, well, how do I model and experience contact with all aspects of that, all aspects of the divine, whatever that may be called? But if you're telling me that the divine is only patriarchal, only male, only white, and only American, then I'm, I'm, I'm starting to lose touch with how it's possible that that's a comprehensive representation of, of what the divine is, right? Yeah. And then right. you look at healthcare and every single doctor you go to is so compartmentalized that yeah. they're only looking at you as a system, not as a person. So no one, no one has that, that interconnected collegiality of saying, hey, Jerome has this stuff going on globally. Let's put the whole puzzle together. Yeah. And then the Enneagram just reinforces that by saying you're going to spend your entire life being a thing. And even though we know you have the capacity for emotion and for thinking and for doing for what's called the heart, head, and body centers – for your, your ability to be a whole human being, 
we're going to force you into this, this narrative that says, well, you're just this one thing. And that still felt like a reinforcement of that reductive yeah. uh, binary kind of, you know, um, dualistic thinking of it's either or. And, and, you know, the more that we learn about the way the brain works and the more we learn about the world, the way the world works, and hopefully the more we learn about the way our own spirituality, even if we choose to have a lack thereof, it's still a comprehensive experience for who we are as whole beings, whole human beings. Yeah. Um, but there's just not a lot of language about navigating towards the pursuit of becoming more whole. And I was, I was just so frustrated by the lack of that personally, that realistically all the stuff that I make is just me trying to answer my own question. Right? Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, could, could you give me um, a little overview of the Enneagram? I, I'm afraid I, I may have been guilty once or twice in the course of the past three or four years of being that proselytizing friend that's saying, Oh, you got to <laughs> check this thing out, man. It's so great. Um, and so I, I think my listeners have heard me talk about the Enneagram before. I, I haven't spent a ton of time on it, but uh, could you give a, a quick dirty overview of what, what is this? Enneagram means nine, right? Like yeah. that's what the Ennea means nine. Yeah. So Ennea means nine in Latin and then gram is just a written drawing right so enneagram is just a it's a mandala or a symbol a lot of people mistakenly confuse it with a pentagram because it's it, it looks like a star it's mm. not a pentagram is five and yeah. he is nine right completely different spaces um, but really the enneagram is uh it's often called a personality typing tool it's actually not accurate it's been it's older than that the last 50 years is more of a modern interpretation of including it into contemporary psychology and contemporary personality work. But the way that I explain it to everybody is that it's a model and a translation tool for helping you to understand what motivates you and why. The biggest difference with the Enneagram from other kind of personality inventories or assessments like Myers-Briggs, Strength, Finders, Disc, Berkman, a lot of other ones is most of those will tell you what you do and how you do it, but not necessarily why. So they tend to be more behavioral based and situational or, or, or placement based for a job or a corporate kind of expression. But the reason so many people connect with the Enneagram is because it's so much more heavily connected to your why, your core motivation of either pursuing pleasure, avoiding pain, feeling safe, surviving in every context of what it means to be a human. And it gives you so much more nuance of what is driving and motivating you, especially subconsciously, that manifests in what we call a personality. My way of describing it is that the Enneagram has nine numbers, and each of those numbers ascribe to particular ways that people show up. Uh, kind of like if I say I'm South African and I move into a South African accent and I sound a, a bit more Africana, mm -hmm. you know, my dad, my dad had a thick Afrikaans accent, you know, so mm -hmm. it's like that's an Afrikana who happens to be a human. Or if you're a Southerner, you know, I grew up in Tennessee, landed in Tennessee, you know, there's different dialects that come out. Yeah. You're still a human. You just have different ways of engaging based on your cultural experience. Right. Well, the nine numbers in the Enneagram are ways of kind of showing up. So I tell people, think of the Enneagram as a planet. I, I, I like this dialect. I, I love what you just did there with the, yeah. because, because you can like switch in and out of it. And so totally. like you, you could think of the Enneagram as being like, these are nine different dialects of human experience it's or exactly motivation. Right. I love yeah, that. I'm sorry. I cut you off. Go no, ahead. I going. love it. I love it. Please. I'm easy. Um, so one of the things that I've actually moved very heavily into is, is helping people understand that it's same dialect or different dialects, same language. Mm. And it's a fluency conversation, right? 
Um, so to give an example and a metaphor, and then I'll give the explanation of the Enneagram. Um, I'm South African born to Zimbabwean parents, and I am an immigrant on a refugee status, on a, as a refugee on asylum status from Congo and Zaire to Knoxville, Tennessee. I went to five different schools in Northeast Tennessee, five different schools in North Georgia, did my undergraduate in Arizona, and I've been in, I've been in Atlanta, Georgia for the last 17 years. So then the question becomes, who am I and where am I from? Yeah. <laughs> How, I can tell you for sure I'm from Earth. That I know for sure, right? <laughs> But the reality is there's so much to my background because I've had environments that have required me to speak different languages, literally. I was fluent in Afrikaans and French when I moved. My dad was fluent in 13 languages, nine of them tribal, right? So the language that we speak, even the dialect that we speak, is dependent on the region that we're in and what that region requires of us. So if you look at the Enneagram, it's got three centers, head, heart, and gut. You can think of that as mind, body, and soul. Head is the mind, gut is the body, heart is the soul. From a neurological perspective, the head correlates with our left brain and our, yeah. mental, our mental real estate. The heart correlates with our right hemisphere and our emotional nonverbal real estate. And then the gut correlates with our subconscious brainstem, cerebellum, like all of these subconscious kind of drivers that help us to, to develop into people at all. And I've got to tell you, I loved that way that you mapped that those three models onto the the right hemisphere, left hemisphere, brainstem. That was and and then especially the section in your book where you went through the numbers and you're yeah. like, okay, so a seven is uh, what, what left left stem or something like that. Yeah, it was, exactly. That, that was great. Anyway, please yeah, continue. <laughs> no, thank you. And that's that's really trying to help everybody see it. That you know, a lot of the times when somebody's introduced in the enneagram, they're told where you currently live. Right? Mm -hmm. Where's your current house? But telling somebody that you can't change your type is like telling somebody they can't change their address. Yeah. Now, I'm, I may take my predisposed kind of dialect. If I move at this point to South Africa, I sound like an American, but I'm South African born, right? But my accent will be quintessentially American, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm American. It means that I'm a, I'm, I'm a legal resident alien who happens to be technically an African-American, but I'm a white guy named Jerome. So then things get super confusing, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So in this space, what I'm communicating is that if you see all aspects of who you are available as a resource, then you can start to see it as a travel opportunity and start to see the interior landscape of who we are. And the metaphors really start to become a lot more accessible. Yeah. So you go, okay, I identify really closely with this particular nature. And, and what I mean by that, I'll give your listeners an example. In the gut, you have what's the types that are known as eight, nine, and one. And the gut is your instinct-based space where you're more reactive, but you're also more driven to doing. So the eight is, is associated with the capacity to do, deal, and create disruption. They're able to challenge and they're able to deal with conflict in a different way. They're also really motivated by growth, right? They're really, really motivated by independence. Nine is the country on the, the continent of instinct that says, what does it look like for us to step back, catch our breath, rest, be the peacemaker, be the person who's moving into serenity and conflict negotiation. And then the one is a country on the instinct that says, hey, I appreciate the ability to jump in and wage war or the ability to step back and, and do conflict negotiation. But we also need to make sure there's processor and process, procedure, policy, protocols, all the piece, right? And the one is very heavily, heavily driven by accuracy and reformation. Like, let's yeah. do it better. Let's find a better way to do it. But all three of those are doing based, right? And I have the capacity to access all of those. Right. I just may, may totally. not do it, may not have a high fluency in it, right? So okay, and, to go and I, I just want to pause on that for a moment yeah. because you you mentioned earlier that you found the enneagram when you first were introduct 
introduced to it, you found it to be very reductive and it was focusing on the negative things. To me, there's, there's two numbers that really highlight that. And, and the one is one of them. And then the six is the other one for, for me and my interpretation of it. And I still find myself looking at somebody who is a perfectionist or they stress themselves out. They get really anxious because things have to be just right. You got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And, and I think, oh, they must be a one. So this, this is, this is me falling prey to that negative shaming, <laughs> reductive yeah. way of, of viewing the Enneagram is what I'm yeah, learning from you. Totally. And, you know, and this is also the thing where there's so much opportunity uh, to, to use some of that, uh, reframe some of that positive uh, spiritual language, that this is where you can offer each other grace, right? Yeah. Shame is that there's an insufficiency and somebody's missing it. Grace is it's okay. Even if, even if you're not complete yet, we'll work, we'll work towards wholeness, right? But the reality is one of the big things that isn't communicated very clearly in the Enneagram that I'm trying to introduce to some of the mental health, the neuropsych, the functional neurology is that this isn't just built in us through our experiences of trauma or adverse childhood experiences. It's also built through what helped us feel good growing up, what helps us feel good now, what helps us feel safe. So whenever I see, I'll use that as an example or use you as an example, if that's okay, Glenn. Sure. When somebody goes, I have a confirmation bias that tells me that I feel some resistance to six and one. What immediately we know with the way that the brain works is that for some reason, your brain goes, I feel better if I'm distanced from those spaces. Yeah. Or I don't feel safe or as safe or as enjoyable an experience if I get closer to those. So what you're saying is for some reason in the collective lived experiences that I've had as a human being named Glenn, my brain is telling me that that does not feel like an approachable space. It doesn't feel like a viable space to stay. So mm. my survival strategy is to minimize contact with that. And that's because every single space on the Enneagram, like every single human being, has a Jekyll and a Hyde. It has a pro and a con. It has a mature and immature regulated and dysregulated version of itself. So you are looking at six and one and going, I've had some legitimate encounters with somebody who speaks that particular dialect that didn't feel as healthy or as life-giving. And you know, when you have a strong, unhealthy six, you're dealing with somebody who has unrelenting anxiety and concern about what's about to happen. They, their, their space of saying, I don't feel safe because I don't know what the strategy or the plan is. And that type of person who worries constantly can, can create a lot of friction and create a lot of anxiety, especially if you grew up around that energy and it didn't feel life-giving for you and you decided to move away from it. Mm. So a lot of people either grew up, if you're low in a six or a six feels a bit allergic to you, you either grew up in an environment that did not produce or create fluency in what it looks like to strategize and plan and forecast in healthy ways and didn't show you the fruit and the benefit of what it means to be loyal and committed and trustworthy and have integrity. And because there was a lack of demonstrated kind of reliability in that space, your brain went, well, that's wishful thinking to pursue that. I've got other areas that I could be more committed to investing my time and energy because the return on the investment to stay in that, I don't have enough data to support that that's viable. Yeah. The other, the other, so it wasn't rewarding enough, right? Yeah. The other side of it is that it could have been really risky you grow up in a space where you have a lot of experiences with people who aren't trustworthy, especially as it relates to relationships and, and family dynamics and companionship and, and somebody saying, hey, we're going to really, I'm trustworthy and we've got a plan and a strategy that's going to keep you safe and connected. 
you know, it, it's also one of those things as an example in scripture for somebody who's, you know, recovering charismatic and you being in a Mormon space. There's, there's a lot of the six energy is the space of loyalty. So a lot of the times when we grow up in a faith-based space, it's like, you're just on the edge of being kicked out. You're just on the edge of being excommunicated or forsaken or being but, unworthy or being unworthy or unwelcome, right? You're about to be outside of the tribe. So that constant reminder of you're never really going to be fully in safe in the fold. You're never really going to be fully, uh, we're never really going to be fully committed to you being a part of the family, right? That takes the part of your brain that goes, well, is loyalty real and is loyalty viable? And goes, no, I mean, if I'm always on the edge of being, you know, somebody giving up on me and giving up on our relationship and they're not going to be a companion, why would I stay there? Yeah. So a lot of the times you can end up in a space where you leave that space because it doesn't feel viable. Or for instance, to give you some, some opportunity to connect with the one, somebody is very high in a one energy where it offers a chance for compassion and grace. If you're kind of allergic or resistant to that one space is to realize that your idea of somebody really just browbeating you over achieving everything in excellence, that a 99 is not acceptable and it's not good enough. Only a hundred is good enough. Mm. That idea of somebody being that aggressive or that assertive or that intentional about saying you have to do it better. It's never good enough. That kind of experience is so daunting and so intimidating. The difference between somebody who's low in a one and somebody who's high in a one is you could have had those exact same encounters but the person who's high in a one did not have an exit strategy. If you're low in a one, you had a way to get out of that environment and decide, I don't want to live there. I don't want to speak that language. But somebody who's high in a one, they couldn't move. They were locked into that place. And in order to survive, they had to become fluent because the reality for them is if they do it better, it's not that their life feels more enjoyable. It's that it feels less painful. So when you look at somebody who's in a one space, you're seeing somebody whose constant effort is just to mitigate pain. And that's a really, really hard, that's a chronic pain. That's a chronic pain diagnosis that's relational and, and mental and cognitive. And it shows up in different ways, but to, to see somebody who is showing up in the, you know, the diagnosis of a perfectionist and realizing it's actually somebody who's just constantly trying to mitigate pain. That's, that's a hard place to be, you know? I, I I am so blown away by what you just said, <laughs> and I've got so yeah. many questions. I want to dig into it more, but yeah. I don't want to stop you from making your way around the enneagram. Sure. You know, I stopped you yeah, uh, with okay. the with the with the gut thing. So I I want to put a pin in this. I want to come back to it, um, sure. and uh, yeah, ha have have you continue because you were talking about the the gut or the brainstem. Yeah, and then we can I, move into the heart. Yeah. yeah. So anybody who's familiar with the Enneagram will realize that I not only inverted the Enneagram vertically, I also mirrored it horizontally. Hmm. So it's flipped upside down and then it's, it's flipped horizontally as well. Uh, so it puts the left hemisphere and the head center on the left, the right hemisphere and the heart center on the right. And then it puts the gut and the brainstem below because that's the normal anatomy of a, of a brain. A brain yeah. Yeah. A brain. And pro uh, it, it's called a coronal view. It's like looking at the back of somebody's head. So as you're imagining this, if you looked at the back of somebody's head, you'd see the head center on their left side, the heart center on their right side, and then the gut center would be at the base of their skull is kind of the way that it orients. It's also funny because without any knowledge about neurology or neuroscience, I always found it entertaining that the gut was above the head. Right. And the gut was above the heart. And I went, even without the neuroscience, I don't think I've ever met anybody <laughs> whose, gut, whose gut is above their head or their yeah. heart. 
So fortunately, people have pushed back very little on that because I keep going, well, it, it doesn't really make sense to have the gut above the head. Um, but coming back to the explanation, eight, nine, and one are the guts, two, three, and four going around. If you imagine this is a clock and we're going counterclockwise um, and the numbers are, are in, in backwards order, um, two, three, and four in the heart center. And the heart deals with nonverbal communication, relationship. It deals with all of the things that we talk about when we describe emotional health. So the two is the country that has the dialect and the anthem of nurturing and cultivation and unconditional love. Three is the country that has the anthem of appreciate of achievements, success, uh, confidence. You know, they're your confident person who's able to be the the leader who paints the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. So the three is that energy that says, I'm going to be very charismatic and very professional. Uh, the four is the place of the heart that drops into the depth and the, the, I call it the free diver, right? It's the person who knows how to be vulnerable, knows how to deal with emotional pain, but sometimes can drop in so deep that they don't leave themselves enough time to come up for air, right? So the different versions of the heart, the two says, you're going to love me for what I do. The three says, you're going to love me for what I make. And the four is saying, I hope at some point I can love myself and you'll love me for who I am. Mm. So it's what I, what I do, what I make and who I am. But they're all heart centric relationship based things that are motivated by very, very different things. And I always tell folks, you know, if you go to Europe, you can cross the border uh, on very small countries and have a profoundly different experience. They're on the same continent, but they're, they're, their culture is so different. Yeah. So the culture of two, three and four is on the continent of heart, but very different dialect. And then if you cross over that, what the, in the Enneagram world is known as the existential gap between the, the head and the heart is actually what I talk about is just the dividing line between the hemispheres. It's where the corpus callosum lives. So it's not too crazy to see that. Yeah. Um, but when you cross over to the head, you've flown into a continent where five, six, and seven are all tied to what we think logic, deductive reasoning, or the lack thereof, right? It's the idea of what's, what, what is ideas saying? So for instance, five, is the country that speaks the dialect and the language of investigation and research and observation and data and clarity and insights. It's like, I need more information. Six is the one that says, okay, well, what's the strategy? What's the plan? Are we loyal? Are we committed? Do I have guarantees? And do I have courage to move into things that don't feel guaranteed, right? Seven is where we experience enthusiasm. Seven is your, is your warm-natured, bright countries that have a lot of capacity to get outside and have an energetic encounter. Sevens are very different energy. They're tied to enthusiasm. They want novel experiences and their gift is inspiration, right? So one of the ways, two examples that I give of the difference in tone between five, six, and seven is five reads a contract, six signs a contract, and seven doesn't care about a contract. <laughs> okay. Right? So that's one way of thinking about it. Um, and if you hear the question or the statement, I have an idea and the tone changes, because you can say the exact same thing and the tone changes. Five will say, Eureka, I have an idea, right? Six will go, I've got an idea on how we can do that. And seven goes, hey, I got an idea. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. There's, there's a, there's a different, you can see like, the eyebrows, the eyebrows immediately go up. You're right? going to, you're going to love this idea. You're going to love it. Yeah. You're going to love this. I got this idea. Yeah. Right. So all of them are tied to ideas, but with very different energy, but we look at it and go, if the head is tied to our thinking mental real estate and the heart is tied to our feeling emotional real estate and the gut is tried, tied to our action reactivity doing and physical real estate, you start to see a comprehensive opportunity to go, 
what's my relative relationship with my mental health, my emotional health, and my physical health? And all of the access points for these metaphorically through the Enneagram are known as the gut, head, and heart. And they each have three different kind of countries. But then even when you land in the country, if you've ever visited anything, especially including the States, yeah, there's a lot of subcultures within each of those spaces. Absolutely. So I say high level, super high level. If anybody's looking at the Enneagram, just asking yourself the question, how do I think? What do I feel? And how do I show up in the world in my body? The Enneagram helps us to answer some of those. And the brain-based yeah. model is trying to do it comprehensively. And, and one of the things that I, I really love um, a, a, about your approach in, in your book is that you emphasize so strongly that nobody is a single type. <laughs> And, you know, my, my experience with the Enneagram, I, I liked that about the Enneagram as opposed to a Myers-Briggs or one of these other personality types, because he, even the way that I was introduced to it um, was that I, I might be seven dominant, which I'm seven dominant, but in times of stress, I might go into a one dominant where I've developed habits there or in times of relaxation or peace, I might go into the five space and experience that. But I can also, as I get healthier, uh, just as a human being, accessing these other places and, and becoming more whole. So that the, the, the goal is to really be able to access the strengths in every single one of those areas that you just described. And I, that was exactly what you were saying in this book. Um, so so the, the question that I had earlier that I wanted to put the pin in, you know, you were talking about particularly my aversion to certain aspects of the one or certain aspects of the six. If, if you think, okay, I'm on that seven dominant where I've got the wing of the six, or I have experience going into the one could maybe some of that discomfort that you were describing, not just be because of people who I was living with and people who I was interacting with, but just my own internal experience of, of, interacting with the world in those ways yeah. and and what from that neurological perspective what does that say about the way that my brain has developed in, yeah. in certain regions and areas and how i process information yeah you know and it, and that's the beautiful thing with what you're describing glenn is that tone and that way that you're asking the question is inviting you to just be curious which is a gift of seven right five is inquisitive seven is curious of going Am I aware of what made me this way? Am yeah. I aware of how I got here, right? Because if I don't have understanding of how I got here and even understanding of orienting to where you are, you certainly cannot decide where you're going, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that opportunity to just reflect is really, really powerful, especially if the reflection is not tied to mitigating uh, a problem or triaging uh, uh, an issue, right? Yeah. So that being said, you know, it's a combination. I always, I always tell people the way that we develop as human beings is a combination of nature, nurture, and conditioning. So nature is how we came out of the factory. That's our genetics. Nurture is our epigenetic expression based on what the environment calls for, right? And then conditioning is very heavily tied to discipline and discipline-based conditioning. So how were you disciplined growing up? How did you receive it? How did you experience it, which are different things? And then how did you begin to develop your own strategy and dialect for self-discipline, right? Seven Energy, for instance, has a very different experience most of the time, unless it's got also some support from five, 
Seven energy is the most curious, lighthearted, rambunctious, adventurous ADHD part of the brain because it's taking everything in. It's just, it's absorbing everything that life has to offer, but their relationship with self-discipline is going to be very different than somebody who's high in a one. One has got to be so disciplined in the precision and the accuracy of what they actually do that their experience and their dialect, it's like if you look at the difference of a, a Caribbean culture compared to a, uh, a, a Soviet Union era culture, right? You look at Germany or Siberia or these cold kind of weather climates, their, their stoicism is very different to the, 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 the sheer volume of, of expression that a warm weather climate has. So we all experience this for different reasons and we've reinforced it in different ways. But that being said, understanding that it's, it's both nurture and nature and conditioning that have led us there and knowing that the brain is plastic, meaning it can change and realizing that practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. So the question becomes, what are you practicing? And if you change that, do you realize that the brain will actually change whatever the blueprints are? Blueprints are permanent until you upload a new blueprint. It's like an OS update on your phone. Everybody knows nowadays, if I don't update my phone, what my current operating system is, is permanent. But as soon as I download an update, whatever is now the update is now the new permanency, right? Yeah. So permanent doesn't mean unchangeable. It just means fixed. And yeah. you can change that, right? Um, but for example, one of the things that I would connect to using you as, an, as, as a reference point is one of the things that I'm hoping to encourage everybody with, not only saying you have more than one intelligence center of thinking, feeling, and doing at heart and gut. You're capable of accessing more than one type, kind of like you're capable of traveling to different parts of town and different parts of the country and the continent or the world. But the other part of it is realizing that neurologically, there are no one-way roads. It's yeah. not the way the brain works. So one of the shifts is actually to move from one being a stress and four being a growth or five being a growth for, for seven because seven connects to five and one. And that's language that we'll talk about maybe in another podcast, but mm. there's these lines of connection in the Enneagram. They're called the law of three and the law of seven. But the way the image shows up is based on how these numbers connect. But for the sake of time, just to use you as an example, most of the language right now for somebody who's high in a number says you have a growth path and a stress path. Well, realistically, you can't grow and develop a muscle unless you put it under stress. So stress is a prerequisite to growth. So saying one is a growth path and one is a stress path is a bit of a misnomer, sure. right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, if you look at it, for instance, as a seven energy, or I talk about it based on efficiency, let's say you're, yeah. more, you're more fluent in seven and more efficient in seven, you got a lot of stamina in seven. In fact, it would take active restraint to not show up in seven, right? Yeah. That's, how good, that's how good you are at it. <laughs> one of the ways to look at it is to say, as a mature seven, somebody who's seeking inspiration, am I able to ask clarifying questions out of that five space and investigate some better ways to do this and research mm -hmm. and then step back and observe the results, give myself a chance to digest that information? And am I also putting that into action? Because seven and five are stuck in the head. You're just thinking. It doesn't mean you're doing anything with it. So after you've asked those clarifying questions and you've got some of those insights from the five and you've accessed that inspiration in the seven, what are you doing about it? If you don't use a one space as a seven energy, you cannot execute. One is the space where we implement and we execute and we do and we check off our action items and we can mm -hmm. check off our, our to-do list. So when you look at that, for anybody who's listening and wants to understand, if you know a type, just look up the law of seven or look up the growth and stress paths are called integration lines. I'm, I'm trying to change that language a bit, the regulation. 
But if the, the, every single number, a shorthand way of saying it, Glenn, is every single number has four nonstop flights. <laughs> you have the two numbers that are next to it and then the two lines that it connects to. Mm -hmm. And if you as a seven efficient seven energy, when you're moving in that seven space of saying, I want to be inspired, I want to be enthusiastic, I want to have a novel experience, checking in with five, six, five, and one and saying, what is a mature response or what would a what has and what would a mature response look like for me based on what I currently understand? And you can ask that question of all four of those connecting numbers. You have nonstop flights to all of them. Yeah. So you can access, you can access them. It's just whether or not you're intentionally doing so. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I see we're, we're about to come up on the hour. hour. Do, do you have a little bit more time or do we need a hard stop? I do. I've got about, uh, about uh, probably 12 to 13 minutes. Okay. I, I'd, I'd really like to hear you talk about um, from, from a, a, a religious perspective, what, what is, what is trauma? Um, and, and like physically, neurologically, what is trauma? Like what is trauma in the brain and what does it look like to heal trauma and, and how could an approach with the Enneagram be a tool to help? Yeah, such a great question, Glenn. Um, I think really high level, the first thing that comes to mind is understanding that trauma, simply put, is anything that takes longer than a week to recover from. Mm. Okay? Let's put it in the terms of a physical workout. If you do a physical workout that's building stamina, it's building resilience, building strength, capacity. If you do a proper workout, you should be sore for a couple of days but you shouldn't be sore for a week. And if you're sore for a week and you recover in the second week, then you know you overextended yourself. You may not have traumatized yourself, but you got into the on-ramp of what trauma could be because it's taking too long to recover, longer than it should appropriately take. So if I go into the gym and I take a weekend class with somebody who got a certification in a, in a high-intensity workout that they think, they think they know – and they push me too hard and it takes me a week to recover, but I'm okay. That's not trauma. That's just, it's really uncomfortable. It's out, I've overstretched and I've strained myself. But let's say that I'm doing a workout and I tear a tendon or I tear a muscle or I fall off of a box jump and I hit my head and I get a head injury. Now we're in the three to six month recovery phase or longer depending on the length of the injury. The length of time that it takes to recover dictates the severity of the trauma, right? If it's a week or less, it is not a trauma. If it's three days or less, it is quintessentially uncomfortable, but not traumatic. If it's a week or longer, now you're talking about the length of recovery will determine the severity of the trauma and the ease by which you can get over it, right? So an example that I give everybody is, is if you are old enough to remember where you were when 9-11 happened. When 9-11 happened, most people know where they were, what time of day it was, what they were wearing, what they were eating, who they were with, because as soon as it happened, it was so intense and then it stayed on the news for so long and you re-experienced it over and over again that your brain hardwired it to memory and said, if you ever get anywhere near what this felt like again, you need to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And, and in, in that case, you're talking about it's, you're repeating it over and over again. And that's because you're, from the neurological perspective, you're developing these neural pathways mm -hmm. that, that associate this experience with the way that you're feeling and it, yeah, it kind of creates th this, this hardwired thing. And the, the more that you do it, the more likely you are then to in kind of like use, I think of those neural pathways as like a filter or like an aperture 
that the yeah. world comes in <laughs> through. Yeah, it's shaped our by the forms or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you're talking about is reality and perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody goes to a scary movie and they don't like scary movies, why do they not like scary movies? It's not real, hmm. right? But the thing is, is your brain doesn't know it's not real. It's very relevant to be scared in a movie if you are scared of what's on the screen, right? Yeah. It's very relevant that if you have somebody in your past that you have a negative experience with that was a toxic relationship that hasn't been reconciled and their name pops up on your caller ID right now and they're on the other side of the planet, your brain immediately goes, I don't feel safe anymore, Mm -hmm. right? So we're talking about the process and the brain tied to safety. And if you don't feel safe, you have a higher probability of being traumatized. Now, the severity of the trauma is dependent on three things. And we're talking about a bit of it, but I also want to give some space to acknowledge to people it doesn't require repetition and it doesn't require consistency. Uh, It can actually just have intensity, right? Mm. So there's three factors. You can have something be intense, which means it's strong. Yeah. Frequent, it happens often. And then the duration, how long does it last for? Now, the interesting thing with the pandemic and with 9-11, for example, not only was it profoundly intense, but it's happening constantly and it's lasting for a long period of time. So now you've really formed a trauma. So when you're talking about spiritual trauma, for instance, this is, I think, one of the things that offers an opportunity for everybody to extend an olive branch and a lot of grace to each other around this is that it doesn't have to be real for it to be traumatizing. It has to be relevant right? So if I'm a 14-year-old growing up in a very indoctrinated space and a very interesting culture, subculture, cult, whatever language you want to use, and I don't feel safe in that environment, irregardless of whether or not I am actually safe, mm-hmm. whether or not the reality of safety is there, if you are in a space where you are developing pathways around safety and survival strategies, and for some reason you do not feel safe in any environment, but especially a spiritual environment, because you got to talk about when, you're, when your sense of safety is tied to eternal salvation, or your sense of safety is tied to eternal torture, pain, suffering, excommunication, and abandonment, your sense of fear is tremendously higher, right? Not only is the intensity high, that there's there's legitimate consequence to disobedience. But now that conversation is being repeated on a regular basis and it's lasting for your entire adolescence. You go into adulthood with a hyper-efficiency for survival, right? Now we don't think of it that way, but in the brain, in the first, the brain doesn't finish hardware development for 30 years. So when we're doing spiritual development in adolescence, we don't even have an effective board team, board members. We don't even have an effective executive team. We don't have an established CEO that has all of the skills and capacity. We don't have the faculty, literally, to understand what's happening. That's why it takes 30 years to develop it and be able to reflect in our late 30s, early 40s, and 50s, how our brains process so differently, even in our 30s, never mind our teens, right? So when we're talking about spiritual trauma, the, the, the bottom line that I would say in, in understanding it and then also working with it is that it's first and foremost tied to safety and tied to survival and tied to perceived safety and perceived survival of what feels relevant, even if it's not real. And then being able to recover from whatever your felt sense of trauma was, which was absolutely relevant for you in your lived experience and has to be acknowledged, not dismissed or bypassed. Then the question first becomes not only acknowledging it 
and being able to connect with the reality of what you experienced in a safe way with support if you need in terms of therapy or counseling or coaching. But then being able to go, is that experience that I had or that trauma that I had based on what didn't feel safe, is that danger or that threat still relevant today? Because if you don't assess that, your brain is running a protocol based on a blueprint that it built decades ago. And it's constantly looking around the corner for the bear that's going to jump out of the woods and eat you. But you haven't seen that particular bear, spiritual leader, parishioner, participant, spiritual member for two decades. You haven't encountered that language or that experience. You may have moved out of that country decades ago, but even the idea of revisiting it is traumatic, right? So there's a lot of I think it's just giving grace for the sake of the time and the conversation, uh, giving awareness that the, the brain doesn't process in potentials. It processes in experiences. Yeah. And one of the phrases that I would use about trauma specifically that may help to distill this is when you experience a trigger, your brain does not know that you are remembering it. It is under the imp- impression that you are re-experiencing it. Yeah. So until something comes in and says, this is a memory, it is, his, it is historical, it will re-experience it until told otherwise. So the sooner that you can move into a space, and that's what's known as secondary re-traumatization, but the sooner that you can move into a space where you're like, man, that really hurts, but that was a historical experience, I'm not having that experience again because your memory makes you think that it is or else we wouldn't get scared in scary movies, yeah. right? It thinks that it's real. Well, th- this is so relevant, and I, I, I would love to have another conversation <laughs> with yeah. you about this. You know, I've been doing this podcast since 2012, and the tone has really changed. It, it, it started off really just this kind of like a fuck you to the Mormon Church and like everything sure. about it, and just like anger. And but, but then I got, I got to a point where I was concerned that doing that over and over again was reinforcing this trauma or the secondary reinforced trauma that you talked about. And so I, what, what I'm trying to, to better understand now is where is that balance between validating someone's experience? Yes. The the way that you saw this, the way that you're feeling it's right, it's valid, but let's, let's take that and then heal from it (laughs) and instead continually reinforcing the, the things that we're angry about, outraged about, the things that we feel hopeless about. Um, to, I, I know you don't have a ton of time and that's a big question. Um, and any... no, I can speak to that. Yeah, yeah I've, great. Got, I've got a context that I would, I would land with, especially for what you just shared in terms of the arc, yeah. um, is, this is this has happened a lot more in the last 10 years around what's known as deconstruction. Mm. Right. And in the Christian world, there's a lot of deconstruction for people moving from what are known as the largest demographics and demographic in the Christian world now is known as a Christian nun. The nun. Somebody, yeah. yeah. The nun who doesn't ascribe to anything. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is because of the nature of, of the way that the language and the in the conversation has changed into this deconstruction language. And what you're talking about is a deconstruction of faith to a degree. Yes. Right. Like yes. I, this is not the same place that I that I grew up in. Right. So the the language that I would use in that space or kind of the, the framework that I would leave the conversation with right now is to ask the experience and to think through the questions of what would I do if I was deconstructing my house, right? 
Because I think this is where a lot of the times the orientation to where you are in the conversation is very, very different if you realize that you're renovating the house Mm -hmm. versus deconstructing the house versus relocating where you live. Those are very, very different strategies. Yeah. Or or completely demolishing the house. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So or demolishing it. Right. So in this situation, are you blowing it up? Right. Because you being high in seven have access to that eight pulling a you know, setting the whole thing on fire and, and, and laughing and cooking marshmallows as it burns is yeah. very much in you. Right. Yeah. I, I, the, I, I'm a frequent flyer on that nonstop flight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's a survival strategy. It's like, that's healthy. Right. But my point with, as I go through, uh, uh, as I go through a developing faith, right. So the reality is the brain develops, it evolves, whatever word feels right for you, it matures, we become different versions of ourselves physiologically every day. Yeah. Never yeah, mind yeah. every decade, every second, right? Yeah. Every second. So when we're looking at this, I think the biggest thing, Glenn, of being able to say, okay, this is a house that I grew up in spiritually. Do I want to live here, but I want to renovate? Do I want to live here and I actually enjoy the current construction that it is? Do I have a felt sense that I want to blow it up? And if I want to blow it up, is there anybody else who's still living there that's going to be collateral damage? Or do I have complete ownership of the space? And if I want to, I can blow it up, but I just have to do it without collateral damage or harming other people because that's never, ever going to be okay, right? Hurt, hurt people, hurt people, abuse people, abuse people. If you want to blow it up, just make sure that you evacuate the house first, right? Yeah. Then if you're deconstructing it, deconstructing it is saying, okay, the foundation may work, but everything that was built on top of it doesn't anymore. Or the land, the viability of the soil may work, but even the foundation isn't right. So I want to just start all over, but I want to stay in the same place. That's very different than relocating and going, I can't live in this particular container or this particular environment or neighborhood or community. So what does a new community look like? Faith or non-faith-based, spiritual or non-spiritual, right? But the other thing, the, the reason I mention this in terms of of renovation, no renovation, deconstruction, demolition, relocation, vacation home, right? Whatever the analogy may be, the biggest challenge that has happened, and it was some of the tone of what you communicated at the beginning that you, you're saying, I, I want to avoid reinforcing uh, in, in a healthier aspect or a healthier version of what the podcast is, because it's, it's coming from a heart of support. It's also sometimes channeled through that intensity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is if you do not acknowledge where you are and you start deconstructing the question i always ask everybody is if you start renovating deconstructing or demoing your house where are you living yeah because if you're not in the if you're the only way that you can be in the house is if there's a renovation but if you're not renovating and it's one of the other options you are no longer in that house so if you're not in that community and in that container and you don't have somewhere intentionally to live during that time, yeah. you will experience homelessness. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is you end up being the group of people standing outside the, you know, the barrel fire, being upset at the way the world has, has treated you. Because I work with a lot of folks that are experiencing homelessness in a lot of organizations, and it's a temporary thing. But one of the things that's, it can be a temporary thing, let me clarify. Yeah. But one of the biggest things that, that, that happened in those spaces that we're seeing happen in spiritual communities is when they lost their anchor to what felt like home, they didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. And if you don't have anywhere to go and there isn't that intention of finding out what feels like a safe place and access to resources matter, not everybody has the same access or the same equity, but if there is not that orientation to where are you and are you living somewhere else, where are you sheltering? Then what ends up happening is you are going to get heavily beat up 
by every single environmental thing that you encounter because you don't have any degree of shelter. You're out in the open, right? So I say that just to land the plane, that if you're in a deconstruction phase, that is 100% okay. And understand that if you're not going to be living in the container you grew up in, there's going to be a really, really important and essential need to ask, where am I living in the meantime? And I also have the permission to transition into different housing based on where I ultimately land. And if you decide to be a nomad, man, that's awesome too. Backpack <laughs> the hell out of your entire spiritual journey, but do it on purpose, Yeah. right? Do it on purpose. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. So welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, no, I, I loved it. Um, it, do, do you, if, if I have any listeners that want to reach out, do, do you, are you able to like treat people in different States or do they need to be in, in Georgia? Yeah. So I can do telehealth in a brain coaching capacity, but it, it, it gets coaching. a little, yeah, yeah, it gets a little, it gets a little bit different in terms of scope for clinical recommendations. Sure. Um, but I can, I I'm licensed in Georgia and Texas um, but the easiest way to connect with all of the content from the neurotheology to the Enneagram, to the clinic, to podcasts is just drjerome.com. It's just D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E.com and everything is there. All right. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I want to be your best friend and I want to work with you. <laughs> I would love that. I, I, awesome. I would love that. And I would tell you, Glenn, as I tell anybody who's listening, I have legitimately the best EA on the planet. Yeah. She's so good at managing. And I know my schedule for the next two years. Uh -huh. so there might be a delay, but if you're proactive enough to get on the schedule, hey, man, we're there for it. So cool. let's do it. All right. Amen. That sounds awesome. All right. Thank you for taking the time today. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll pleasure, talk man. more. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. Take care. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. If you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the